The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. As we talked this morning, I tried to lay out a couple of basic themes that had to do with the fact that we want, we want to be people who understand the work of Satan and the way of fighting. We want to pick those verses out and understand them in their context in order to be people who are faithful to Scripture, who don't proof text, who don't, you might say, tend to read, read into one part of Scripture something that very part of Scripture might contradict because it's telling us something different. We want to be people who are sensitive to, to uh, Scripture, not as, as I said, a bag of marbles, but as something where the marbles are connected. They're hooked in. Uh, scripture is a book. It's a book that was, that was written and articulated and hangs together the way that, that uh, books do. And as we looked at that, we, we saw how the Old Testament, in a very striking way, given the culture it's in, the occult kind of culture, it marginalize, even marginalizes uh, the, uh, the power, the autonomous uh, power, the working of, of uh, Satan and his demons. It puts them, it radically subordinates them to God's ultimate sovereignty and control and even God's, uh, within God's permissive will, what they're allowed to do. And then in, uh, and we saw how in the, as we got to the Gospels, that there's an explosion of demonic activity, and there's a, and there's a very different uh, modus operandi that comes to the fore in the way that Jesus Christ deals with the, the very visible, obvious uh, demonization and, and Satan establishing his control and lordship over people in a way that, just, that cannot be missed. And he strikes vividly and uh, uh, strongly at that. And then we laid forth that... Uh, along with many other aspects of Christ's ministry, there's an abiding component, a continuity in terms of what needs to happen, and there's also a discontinuity. Now, one of the brothers mentioned to me in the break another example that's somewhat on the fishing level, it's in the semi-humorous level, is the way of paying taxes, that you contrast Jesus and Matthew with the, you know, the, the, the coin in the fish's mouth as opposed to Romans 13 that says, no, guys, pay your taxes, you know. This is the way you're going to do it. Again, a, a dramatic mode meant to, why the mode? is meant to illustrate something. It's an, the mode was an illustration, and that point really uh, is at the, fun, at the foundation of the sort of thing, that I, the kind of point that I'm trying to make. Now, we're going to move here to the epistles. The epistles, Romans 1.1 1, 1, on through Revelation. And uh, obviously we're not going to uh, deal in exegetical depth with every verse. There, uh, there are literally scores of, of uh, passages in here that deal with the issue of Satan and his attacks and, and his threats and the kind of, uh, of bondage he puts people in and the way of fighting. Um, let, me, let me make a, uh, a couple of general comments first. Uh, one, right off the bat, uh, it seems to me that what, what appears as you look at the way Satan is presented in the epistles, what appears right on the surface is that the problem that we're dealing with is what we might call monolithic evil. Monolithic evil. That the world and the flesh and the devil 
are th are work in concert. They're wedded to each other. They're one flesh. And the, the fundamental uh, goal of it all, of Satan's goal in this, is to, is to exert his lordship. He is a master. He is a ruler. He is a father who makes people in his image. He controls people. He enslaves people. He kills people. He kills his slaves. There's this picture of him as a master. And as a master, he works through, he works through corporate contexts, through the world, through the value systems, the institutions, the idols, the, all the lies that get sold people, the influence of other people on us. And he ultimately works in the human heart, that there's a, there's a congruence between the, the, the human heart with its lusts, desires, vulnerability to be, believe lies and falsehoods, and the working of Satan, the working of the world. Uh, now, one of the other, uh, uh, one, another, another summary comment I think I'd make in this is that very similar to the Old Testament, in presenting the world, the flesh, and the devil, the Bible tends to present it, them in a certain balance. So, for example, what gets, the, what gets the heaviest weight by far is the flesh, the human heart, the human heart in its vulnerability to evil. The human heart is addressed by the gospel. The human heart is invited to be transformed. The human heart is where we're invited to just to a radical kind of self-knowledge that searches out all the crud and corruption, deceit, depravity, and such that's there. And then the second, you might say, that's pushed front stage. Background is the world. And the, the world is talked about in, in, in great depth, especially if you think about the world from the standpoint of false teachers, people who mislead others. I mean, there's a lot there on the, on the false teachers, but it's, in a sense, it's, it's back one step in the background as those things influencing and misleading and misguiding us, the flesh, you know, we as individuals in the flesh. And then you might say behind the curtain, and the curtain again lifting up, somewhat like the Old Testament, only a lot more frequently, the curtain lifts up and we're, we look at the stage director, the guy that, that stands behind the whole thing, who is the devil. And, uh, and the fact that, this, that Satan is lured through the, through the workings of the world and lies and false prophets and all this, uh, people that mislead others, abuse others, sin against others, hurt others, oppress others, anger and division and immorality and drug abuse and you know, just the whole sordid litany of the works of the flesh. He's the master behind that. And he's the master of the human heart, tempting it by, not by, you might say, putting something in there that's not there, but by appealing to the very things that are there in terms of our fallenness. Uh, yeah. So there's a second comment just on the, on the balance there in Scripture. This, it's this monolithic evil, these, these three forces or perspectives working in concert, and different amounts of attention and focus put on them. Third thing I want to say is that it's very striking very striking that just as we turn the page from Malachi into Matthew and EMM appears dramatically in the ministry of our Lord Jesus, you turn the page from Acts into Romans 1 and it disappears just as dramatically. Totally disappears. There is, it, there is not a single passage from, if, from Romans 1, 1 through the end of Revelation that has any kind of even overtone of an EMM sort of methodology. Um, you look at the passages in context. I made the comment in, in passing in the morning. It's one of those things where, where Peretti, uh, Peretti's book, in borrowing from Ephesians 6.12, uh, his title of this present darkness, he's borrowing something 
which actually contradicts much of the methodology that he portrays within the very book that he talks about as he gives an EMM, ecbalistic kind of methodology. Um, Ephesians is, is probably the richest book on spiritual warfare. It's a different method. That's, that's where we want to go today and, uh, and look at this. But I, w I, wanted, I do want to underline this right off the bat, that, that it seemed to me that advocates of EMM Again, making this is-ought argument, often stress that if you're sensitive to the workings of Satan, the bondage that he puts people in, the, the depth of, of, uh, of pain and misery and trappedness and, and, uh, and, and uh, suffering and distortion and pride and occult uh, strangeness, that if you're sensitive to that, there's a kind of self-evident justification for EMM. And what I want to put forward is that one may have a very high view of the work of the evil one and yet still affirm that the biblical mode of ministry is a different mode. Uh, and I made the comment also in the, uh, in the morning that I think that it's actually an EMM theology that a disjunction is created within monolithic evil where the world and the flesh are torn apart from the work of the devil and his demons rather than seeing that the, the three is essentially working in concert. And I actually want to put forward a, a view of demonization which is in a sense more chilling more, more deep, more dark, more deadly, uh, more, the battle is fiercer than even the, uh, uh, the EMM advocates would say. Uh, so we want to look at the epistles. Uh, are they silent when it comes to giving us patterns of ministry? They aren't. They're lavish. And, they're, and, and you could even say that it's even the dominant purpose of certain epistles to set forth modes of ministry that deal with demonic activity, the lust of the flesh, and the pressure of the world as these complementary aspects of evil. Uh, again, a pretty thunderous kind of, uh, pretty thunderous kind of silence here. The th passages I'd like I'd like to look at in particular are, are uh, the the three passages in that use the word resist. Uh, resist. We're going to be looking at First Peter five verse eight. We're going to be looking at Ephesians six verse 12, and, and in each of these in context, we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, again, each, each of these verses in its context. Now, the first question I'd like to, to lay out there is the question of what is it that we're fighting? As we're, as we're, as we're fighting the king of darkness, as we're fighting his, his uh, attempt to, uh, to control us and rule us, what is it that we're fighting? And... Uh, and what, I'm lay, what I lay out here, and you see in the outline, uh, three different components that, uh, that get at the heart of how it is that Satan works, what it is he does to people, how he works, and uh, how, it is that he brings, how it is that he brings about his control, his demonization, his, his lordship, mastery, his enslaving of human beings. And the three are these. One has to do with, with persecutions and suffering. Just out and out brutalities, atrocities, evil, being sinned against, pain, attacks. Uh, as an occasion, you know, as one of the tools that he uses. Second one, as false and divisive teachers. People who mislead others. People who, who portray things that are false. People who lie to other people. Uh, that sort of thing. And the third one is the, uh, is the human heart. As we say there, Satan's congruence with the fallen human heart. 
these three all working together. But we might characterize it this way. We might say that basically what Satan works with is the stick, the carrot, and the donkey. Okay? So we're working with the stick, the carrot, and the donkey. That, that the stick, and that tends to be the focus in, uh, in 1 Peter, that's the focus in the book of Revelation, is that is, is suffering, real suffering. Um, the brutalities that, uh, that, he, that, he, uh, that, that people perpetrate on other people. The, uh, the, it's the, the, in view there in First Peter, in view in Revelation, is less the issue of false teachers, although there's a kind of a minor theme there. But it's more the way in which pain, plain old pain and suffering is an occasion that brings about Satan's moral lordship over people as he seeks to kill people. Now, the way that this operates is very straightforward. Uh, it's no accident that the words in the Bible for temptation and for trial are the same word. Trials are temptations. We often think of temptations more from the standpoint of the carrot. You know, it's that, it's that beguiling image. It's that, uh, that harlot in, in Proverbs that says, you know, come, come, come. You know, it's, it's that piece of chocolate cake that it's the third one of the day that says, eat me, eat me. You know, it's a, well, I'll taste very good. We, we tend to think of temptation in that beguiling sense. But a good bit of temptation is the stick. Because you beat someone and you tempt them to all kinds of things, don't you? You abuse someone, you hit them, you, you cause them, you inflict pain on them, you rob them of life, you, you lie to them and brutalize them, you create temptations to what? Well, right off the start, to anger, revenge, bitterness, pride, re reaction. You create temptations to fear and terror and, uh, and, a, and a, a flinching, uh, kind of an instinctive flinching attitude towards life. You create temptations for the person to seek escapes you know, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll compromise my faith, or, or you deserve a break today, or, or let me just, you know, t take, a t take a drag on that, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, that pipe to, to uh, just give me some little escape from the unrelenting kind of pain and suffering and trouble and abuse and, and all that that I feel. Uh, that kind of pain and suffering uh, that, oh, the way that it gets put often. When, when, when the Bible says don't return evil for evil, it's assuming that when you're treated with evil, it's a very likely, you know, you are very strongly tempted to return in kind. Um, you hit me, and how am I tempted? I'll either be afraid of you, or I'll hit you back. I'm tempted to, I'm tempted to sin, or I'll try escape and, uh, you know, go eat chocolate cake or something like that. I'm, I'm tempted in some very fundamental ways by suffering. Now, that suffering, as, as, as I mentioned there in point three, uh, suffering would have no effect if it didn't have a congruence with the lust of the human heart, would it? Our Lord Jesus was tempted in all ways like as we are, and yet without sin. He suffered uh, terrible uh, betrayal and attack and pain and, 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 uh, uh, and such, and yet his life was without sin. His heart was a different heart. His heart was a heart that was pure and loved God. And so he was thus able to bear, to endure uh, pain and suffering. Uh, that, that theme of, of endurance in faith is the sort of answer you see, for example, in the book of Revelation. One of the places where, uh, on numbers of occasions, we, are, we are, or particular churches that are addressed are portrayed as living where Satan had his synagogue, living in the very place where Satan was ruling, and Satan was beating on people and killing people and, and uh, leading people astray. And the call is to endure. 
endure in faith. Uh, we'll be doubling around and looking at a little more detail at First Peter. This, if that's the stick, then there's also the carrot. Listen there, the carrot, the, the wooings and the beguilings of false teachers, people who want to mislead us and, and give us a deceitful worldview. Uh, again, to, to the credit of, uh, uh, of some of the EMM literature, there's a book, for example, I recently read by Timothy Warner on spiritual warfare. And he's got a major, I mean, he takes an EMM position uh, there's parts I disagree with, but he's got a major chunk on just the way in which Satan's chief weapon is deceiving people. Deceiving people, dece giving them a deceptive worldview, playing with their minds, uh, uh, just making them see the world the wrong way. And, uh, and that's the emphasis uh, of many books, many passages of Scripture. Uh, for example, uh, Ephesians uh, uh, gives a... a uh, Ephesians, it climaxes with a spiritual warfare passage where it tells us to be alert to the stratagems of Satan, you know, the, the wiles of the devil, as it were. But it's interesting that that's, he uses a word there that the only other place it gets used is back in chapter 4, where he speaks about the wiles of false prophets, the, who with their deceptive teaching lead men astray. And, that, and, and he goes on there in the, in the beginning of chapter 5 to say, let no one deceive you. By what? By appealing to the lust of the flesh and making you think that God's wrath is not coming on certain patterns of behavior and motivation and such that are there. Uh, that pattern of lies. And, you, and I get, list a number of other scriptures there that, that basically speak about the way in which Satan can establish his moral lordship through lies, through, through teaching people things which in some way or other candy coat or vindicate the flesh and fail to really root out the flesh as deep as it goes. Let me give a taste of, of some of my critique of, uh, of EMM theology here. Um, I'm convinced that one of the biggest defects in EMM theology is that it fails to, to understand the human heart deeply enough. The doctrine of sin is not deep enough. And there's a sense where when you get to the really serious sins, the really enslaving things, the blinding, deceiving idolatries of the heart and such, at that point, EMM theology tends to call those things demons rather than to deal with them as actually patterns of sin, not willed conscious choice sin. You know, like, oh, there's a lady I can commit adultery with, and here's my wife, I think I'll pick that one. You know, not that kind of, of sin, but much more subtle sin, you know, those deceitful lusts and desires of the human heart that would say, animate that choice and make me rationalize it and feel like I'd be even doing a good thing if I made that choice. It's that, it's that subtle, powerful bondage that the human heart can be in that a biblical theology the heart lays bare, that I'm convinced uh, the, uh, in many ways, EMM the theology uh, tends to be uh, a bit superficial in comparison. And then the third, uh, you know, if we've got the carrot and the stick, and the ways in which Satan seeks to establish his lordship through that. The third one is the donkey himself, and the fact that the donkey, fallen human heart, just tends spontaneously to, to, to fall into Satan's hands, to work the way that he uh, says, wants us to work. Um, there's lots more we can say on that. We'll be saying more in a, in, in a bit. Let me, let me work then. Let me move here to the question of how do we fight? How do we fight? And here's the one word, resist. Resist. Uh, that word resist is used in three places. You have them there. 
Uh, it's literally the word to stand against. Anti, you know, against, anti, and stand. To stand against. Now, Ephesians also uses the word stand three or four other times by itself. It's a standing against something. Standing in the, in, in the, in the presence of an attack of an enemy who wants to capture you and make you his. It's really what's going on. It's a war, we're in a warfare world here. Now, what I want us to do is to look at two sides of uh, two sides of the question. One, if we're going to talk about what resistance looks like, it makes sense to ask ourselves, what does non-resistance look like? What does it look like to fall? So, for example, as we look as we look here at First Peter, chapter five, you get one of those marbles, right? Here's a marble. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, what does it look like to be devoured? What does it look like? Put the question a different way. Is this the first place in the book of Peter that he is bringing up spiritual warfare? Now, it's the first mention of Satan. It's the only mention of Satan in the entire book. What I would submit to you, though, is that actually the whole book has been telling us what it looks like to be devoured. It is a book about what it means to be devoured or to resist. It's, an, it's a window you can take on the entire book of First Peter. What it looks like, just to pick that context, what it looks like to be devoured, for example, in verse 5, we're told to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is it like to be devoured by the devil? It's to be proud. You are, if you are a proud person, you are ruled by the devil. You've been eaten up by him. You have not resisted. You've been eaten. Or verse 7, casting all... Uh, Oh, six, six, same thing. Humble yourself, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. What does resistance look like? What is it to resist the devil here? To resist is going to, one, one aspect of resisting is going to be simply humbling ourselves before God, being under God rather than over God, being humbled rather than proud, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Again, we could ask the question, what does non-resistance look like? It would be to be ruled by our anxieties, living, living life as though there were no God, functional atheists, uh, dealing with the, the sufferings and afflictions and, and misery that First Peter's been talking about in our own strength and power, which will lead to what? Pride, anger, fear, rebellion, hatred of God, grumbling, bitterness. You know, how could God do this to me? He's not, fit. you know, the whole litany of stuff that happens when people suffer, everything you saw in the, in the, uh, the wilderness wanderings, you know, as the children of Israel are getting beaten over the head all over the place, and they grumble and complain and misery and rebellion and all that. Instead of casting it, what is resistance? Casting our cares on God, humbling ourselves before God, trusting him, knowing in his love, that's resistance. Satan is, Satan is defeated as we do that. Verse 7, casting our cares on him, he cares about you. Verse 8, be of sober spirit, on the alert, What's non-resistance? Being essentially a drunk, being blind and just following your impulses, letting life kick you around, whatever it does. You know, just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Being blind to reality. That's non-resistance. That's playing right into his hands. That's getting devoured in a second. Be on the alert. Same, you know, same thing. Alertness is resistance. Non-alertness, uh, drowsiness, 
is, is, is not. Your adversary prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's looking for people he can master and own because that's his agenda. There's the, there's the thing that the it, part of the vividness of what uh, demonization in the Gospels portrays is people under the lordship of Satan. And what you see unpacked through the rest of Scripture is, is how ominous and deep that goes. It's not just simply these things that get called possession phenomenon. It's a much more profound problem that runs through all of human life everywhere. This adversary. Uh, this lion image, by the, <coughs> by the way, is interesting. Where this lion image is, uh, is picked up in two other places. Uh, one is 2 Timothy 4.17, where Paul speaks about being delivered out of the lion's mouth. The other is Daniel, where literally is delivered out of the lion's mouth. And what it's essentially a picture of, that, that image of a lion's mouth that is seeking to devour God's people, is, a, is the place where you're, in, you're face-to-face with persecutors, potential killers, uh, people who are abusing you, people who are claiming lordship over you. It's kingly people. A king, uh, you know, the lion is a, is a kingly, kingly image, kingly people who are evil. And uh, as human kings in Daniel and, first, and 2 Timothy 4.17, human kings reflect the lion behind the scenes who's, who's essentially this false king, Satan, tempting people to, to apostatize and be, create idols and, and, uh, and waffle and all the things that people do under suffering. And then you get the command here in verse 9. Resist. Resist him. What does resist him mean? Well, it's not as though at this point in this verse what we should do is now import marbles out of the Gospels. It's really, it's, it's, not, it's not there because, the, because Peter tells us how to resist. He gives us a sentence where, you know, if I tell you, if I tell you to read this book uh, and read it slowly and read it to answer these questions, I'm telling you how to read it, you know, there. Well, he tells us how to, how, what to do. Resist him, what? Firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How is it that resistance takes place? It takes place as people have their minds and hearts committed in faith to God. They hang in there through suffering. They hang in there through the thin as well as the thick. They live in hope. In the middle of their suffering, they have hope that is in Christ. This is, what is, this is what the book of Revelation is about. This is what Romans 8 is about. This is, what, this, is, this is fighting spiritual warfare here. That in the midst of suffering, people stand by faith. They live for what's true rather than the very beguiling, persuasive lies and lusts that the human heart generates when we face hard things. So if we were to ask the question, just of the five verses in the vicinity of, of, uh, of 5.8, we get a picture of resistance as looking like humility, alertness, self-control, awakeness, casting of cares and pressures on God, firm in our faith, knowing what suffering is all about, a clear-headed dependency of faith that knows God will come through, God is gracious. And we get a picture of non-resistance, of being devoured and owned and demonized which is all the opposite, the opposite of all of those things. People uh, talk about the problem of re- remaining sin. You know, that's a, it's a, the problem of sanctification, isn't it? What, what do we as Christians, how do we deal with the problem of indwelling sin, the fact that we're new creatures and yet there's, 
There's leftovers. There's remnant sin. Well, I think one of the things we could take out of what we've been talking about is that you could equally talk about that, that issue as the problem of the residual dominion of Satan or the problem of the threats of Satan to reestablish dominion over people's lives. You could also equally talk about it as the problem of the ongoing enculturation by the, by the world, you know, that, uh, that people tend to, be, to drift back into the way that the world works. Um, we want to hold those three things together. You know, we want to hold together world, flesh, and devil rather than divide them into some uh, non-monolithic uh, kind of picture there. How do we fight? Resist. How do you resist? At the heart of it is going to be faith. A faith that grabs a hold of what's true and walks in the light. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. The, the battle plan for, uh, for spiritual warfare. Uh, the, the foundation of William Gurnall's uh, great book that I mentioned about the, the, called The Christian Complete Armor. Unpacking in about 1,500 pages the uh, the nature of the armor, these, these 10 verses here. And uh, let's look at Ephesians. The, uh, raise the same two questions about Ephesians. First of all, the question, what does it look, we're, called, we're told here to resist, to stand against, to stand. What does it look like to fall? What does, it look, what does non-resistance look like? What does it look like to yield to Satan? Is, Ephesians, is suddenly in Ephesians 6, in verse 10, now are we talking about spiritual warfare in the previous five and a half chapters not? No. The book of Ephesians is set up as a book where warfare with Satan is at the heart of the book. Uh, the, after, the first chapter is, is essentially about Christ. And then as he, as he starts into chapter 2, the first thing he talks about is again this monolithic evil. Monolithic evil. He speaks there about the fact that you, form, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world. So you get that, that picture there of the influence of the world, the way that everybody does it. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, Satan, the ruler of this dark world. Among them we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. There's the flesh brought in. By nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. You know, the fact that we're embedded in the world is again brought in there. Well, then the next chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 unpack for us what it is like either to be ruled by the flesh, ruled by the, by the spirit working in the sons of disobedience, ruled by the world, as opposed to being ruled by God, standing in the midst of, uh, of battle. And chapter 6, rather than just introducing spiritual warfare there, it's really the culmination. It's the picking up the curtain to say, all this stuff we've been talking about, there's a lot bigger thing going on behind the scenes here, guys. There's an enemy. And he's wanting to kill you, slay you. He's wanting to work in you. I remember one time talking with a, a friend of mine who was a very articulate defender of uh, EMM. In fact, he even wrote a dissertation on that uh, here, in, here at Westminster. And he, uh, he said at one point, look at this Ephesians 2. Um, the spirit, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Doesn't that sound like demonization to you? And I remember I said, you know, it sure does sound like demonization. And look at the answer that God gave in that very passage. He went on to talk about faith as a thing that has raised us up from the control of Satan and raised us up to the heavenlies that we'd be seated, seated in Christ. 
there's an answer there. There's a mode of warfare. It's a non-EMM warfare. Now, one of the things I, I, I really appreciated about that, that particular man, he really saw the monolithic character of evil and that Satan's big agenda is lordship. He saw that. But then he himself, when he got to methodology, he made a certain bifurcation there, split off certain things from other things that seems to me the scriptures here are not splitting off. They're just, they're relentless in putting these things together. What does non-resistance look like? You could essentially run through chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, and 6, and you could take every verse, and you could look at, and you could say that non-resistance looks like the bad things Paul says. So it looks like anger and lying. We already talked about that this morning in chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Of course that's non-resistance, because Satan is the father of lies. He's the, he's the murderer from the beginning. It includes immorality. It includes uh, corrupt speech. It includes rebellious children. It includes manipulative and, and, uh, and godless parents. It includes rebellious employees and harsh masters. Uh, includes people that, that curse, use coarse talk. Uh, includes all kinds of things. Falling simply comes under Satan's lordship in that way. And putting on the armor... Resisting is also spoken about essentially through the whole book, the, uh, as it talks about the good side. That to resist lying, for example, and tell the truth is to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The only way I can possibly do it is to be strong in the Lord. Left to myself, I'll lie, twist, wiggle, deceive, put on false colors, all kinds of things. The only possible way to deal with anger and bitterness and to truly forgive is if I'm strong in the Lord, if I, if I forgive as I have been forgiven. Uh, throughout the book, he's, he's teaching us a way of life that speaks about resisting and standing as opposed to falling. And as you look at the armor, what is the armor? What is the armor? The armor, it, it, the armor is essentially, you could, you could boil it down, but it's essentially truth, faith, and prayer, isn't it? It's essentially, what, yeah, you could throw in obedience there if you want. That's the armor. The armor is these, quote, normal things. This is how you fight. This is how you resist. This is how you're strong in the Lord and his mighty strength is by girding your loins with the truth, taking up that shield of faith. And in, in, the, uh, in the part of the passage that has developed to the greatest extent, the whole uh, section at the end, the most verses, in fact, half of the entire chunk visually is uh, talking about prayer. That, uh, and the parents used to call it all prayer. All prayer, all prayer and petition, prayer at all times in the spirit, on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, that all prayer that uh, gets banged at us four times in that, uh, that verse 18, and then Paul goes on to seek prayer for himself. Uh, this is how we stand. This is how we help each other stand. This is what we do for each other that enables each other to stand. Um, I remember reading uh, in one of the one of the EMM books, where where the man said, in fact, this is also the Timothy Warner book. He said, um, he said, I, I hear people teach that that what we should do is call on our Father to help us, as though we, with with demonic problems, though we should be like children. And doesn't God? And that may be true if we are children, but doesn't God call us also to grow up and to take on the stance of authority? and to, uh, to act like men and cast the demons out. And in essence, he, he makes fun of the very point that I'm trying to make here. I tend to think that he's got it backwards there, that prayer is actually the true, state, the, the, the true reflection of how we do fight. Because prayer recognizes that 
we are no great titans against our enemy. Our enemy is actually bigger than we are. Our enemy is strong. The only way we stand is if we stand in the strength and power of the Lord, in his might, in his gospel, in his hope. And that is how we help each other stand. That prayer, is the, prayer is the atomic weapons in this. And that the, uh, it is actually the stance of dependency is really the one thing that defeats Satan. Satan is the spirit of autonomy that would have us stand separate, stand independent, and think we're strong. The Holy Spirit makes us weak in the right sense of the word. And then the third passage that I want us to look at is in James chapter 4. Uh, we could, we'll say very similar things here uh, about James, as we've said, uh, about Ephesians and about 1 Peter. Uh, you know, it's patent as can be. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. Now again, what is meant by that? Look in the context. Look in the context. What, what, what in this instance does non-resistance look like? And just to take the context just as far back as chapter 3, we could say non-resistance, to quote chapter 3, verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, non-resistance includes an incendiary tongue set on fire by hell, doesn't it? That's non-resistance. That's the devil's rulership, having a tongue that's set on fire by hell, a tongue that is full of lying and cursing and bitterness and grumbling and judgmentalism and slander and deception and lies. That's a demonic tongue, is essentially, is what's being talked about there through chapter 3, a hellish tongue that, uh, that comes, uh, comes from below. And then later in chapter 3, it again mentions the demonic, uh, speaks about the wisdom that comes from below, that is earthly, natural, and demonic. And what is that wisdom? Well, that, that, that quote-unquote wisdom is really the folly of selfish ambition, pride, jealousy, desires, living for my will be done, that, that fundamental uh, self-centeredness, that self-exaltation and, and demandingness that characterizes the human heart. Earthly and sensual, uh, these sorts of things. And what does it lead to? Chaos, warfare, conflicts, fightings, goes on and on. Uh, what causes conflicts? It's your pleasures. Where selfish ambition and jealousy exist, chaos, every evil thing will exist there. Because here you've got essentially a picture of what it means to be ruled by Satan. I made the comment uh, uh, earlier in the morning that, that if you want to see someone who is a demonized person, you look at yourself when you're angry. <laughs> you want to see demonized? There it is, folks. You know, you sell yourself a whole line of lies. You're full of rationalizations. You're full of that combination of self-righteous vindication of self at the expense of some other because I see that person. I see what's wrong with them. I see the speck in their own eye. I accuse the brethren. And all along the way, I'm afraid that they'll get me. And I'm, you know, part of me is ducking and weaving and trying to avoid my own guilt. That's demonization. Now, you know, as you look at that, you're, you, when, you, when you see an angry person, you see a person that is under the sway and control of Satan, don't you? He's playing Satan. He's in Satan's image. He's, it goes on in chapter 4, verse 12 here to say, there's only one lawgiver and judge. Who are you that you judge your neighbor? Well, who you are is God, aren't you? You're playing God when you judge your neighbor. The angry person is playing God. Who plays God? Satan. <laughs> Who's, who judges other people? Who's the accuser of their brethren? Satan. And so you get this, this uh, 
terribly withering diagnosis of what our problem is that underlies as common a phenomenon as the war making that takes place between people. And you remember back all, you know, we talked about Ephesians 4 and, and uh, the whole way that we're not ignorant of his designs. At the heart of Satan's work is a slavery to create war makers who hate God and get divided from other people. What's the answer that's given here? James gives a non-EMM answer, doesn't he? It's a non-ecbalistic non answer. So, you, so verse 7 cannot be used in an EMM context. Verse 7, like, like all the epistle verses, does not defend EMM. It defends a different mode. The mode is essentially a mode of repentance and faith. It's repentance and faith. Verses uh, 6 through 10 of chapter 4 are the most lengthy, detailed description of repentance in the entire Bible. It's in the context of, of, uh, of resisting the devil and drawing near to God, cleansing our hands, purifying our hearts, weeping over our sins. And it's all based upon what? God's grace, verse 6. He gives greater grace. Greater grace than what? Greater grace than the terrible uh, devastation of the human heart that he's just been portraying for us. More we could say there. Uh, I've got cues there. Basically, the issue of monolithic evil. Same thing is there. God's grace and strength. It's there. But let me let me uh, pull things together in this way. The epistles are full of stuff on spiritual warfare. In fact, even the the, the ones that don't mention Satan. A book like Titus, for example. You look at Titus three three, on a portrayal of of what the flesh is like, and. You, you, you could look at, at Titus 3.3 3 and just pick up the curtain and see behind it and you would see the devil, wouldn't you? That portrayal of hatred of people and being hated and lust-driven, selfish kind of life. Uh, even where the devil's not mentioned, he's right behind the scenes. And yet it is a mode of, of uh, fighting that we're given that is a non-EMM mode. Now, let me, let me uh, uh, draw out some, some observations here. Um, one of the things that I, I have thought, both from uh, conversations with EMM proponents as well as, as uh, books, is that what I hear are people whom I don't think are well attuned to the depth of the flesh. I think, there's, I think there are two very fundamental uh, doctrines in Scripture that are, are, are virtually ignored in EMM theology. And one is the flesh and the nature of the human heart and its congruence with Satan's lordship. And the, depth, and the depth of that bondage. And the other is the doctrine of progressive sanctification, the doctrine of a, of a progressive transformation. I think what tends to happen instead is that you get a fairly superficial idea of sin as though sin is choices that people make, and then they become habitual. And if you get someone to renounce those, that, uh, that then the, the, um, uh, if there's anything left over, in a sense, and any problems left over, in a sense, you've got to start to suspect a demonological cause. I hear in that, and I hear, as I've, I've talked to many counselees as well who've gone through uh, deliverance experiences, I see people that don't really know their own hearts. They think that there's a causality that lies outside them in another being, an agency, that essentially, I think the Bible tells them, it lo it's, it lo it's located inside themselves. Uh, in the, in the functional theology, it's what you could call a Pelagian theology. Sin is conscious willed acts. If you've got bigger problems, it must be something else, i.e. demons that are really holding you into bondage. And what I hear is as, as they talk, they'll, 
you know, they'll talk about normal things. Normal biblical counseling doesn't work with certain hard problems. But what I see that they use that passes for normal counseling is something that I would say is fairly shallow. It's fairly, fairly legalistic, fairly volitionally oriented, fairly rationalistic. And there's not really that, a grasp of that biblical heart-searching, uh, heart-transforming kind, of, uh, kind of ministry that I'm convinced is really the, uh, at the heart of what the Bible is about. Um, So, bottom line there, a naivete about the human heart. Let me, let me give you an example of a, this is a, this is a fairly typical uh, case study from Fred Dickinson, his book, uh, Demon Possession and the Christian. He'll say things like this. Sally was a good Christian girl. She'd committed her life to Jesus. She wanted to serve in the missions. Uh, she was, went to Moody Bible Institute, and she was plagued by evil thoughts. Therefore, it must be a demon of lust that was harassing her. Now, I hear a comment like that. You know, Sally's a good Christian girl. Um, there's no good Christian girls. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> there aren't any. There aren't any good Christian girls. There are sinners. Now, what's going on with Sally? I would say that Sally is probably, she's an immature Christian girl, that's for sure. And she's someone who has a lust problem, that's for sure, too. But Sally has an image of herself that's quite naive. Sally thinks she's a good Christian girl, and she's dedicated to Jesus, and she wants to go to the mission field, and she reads her Bible every day, and she has a lust problem, and she, she does not have a working theology of her own heart that lets her realize, this is me doing this. This is me. Sally's very vulnerable then to Fred Dickinson saying, you know, you are a good Christian girl, Sally, and your problem must be a demon. Let's figure out what it is, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll cast it out. Something like that. The, um, essentially, and we're going to unpack some of this more in the, in the, uh, the next hour, that the things that get named as controlling spirits in EMM ministries are actually besetting sins. That's what they are. Take, you take 98% you take of what goes on in EMM ministry. The things that get exercised are the very besetting sins that I see as I do counseling with a Sally and see that Sally is deceived. You know, it's a deceitful lust. She doesn't even know that's her problem. They're the very things that get exercised. And uh, so I've met, uh, you know, I've met numbers of people that had them in counseling who had been delivered of, uh, delivered of demons of pride or delivered of demons of lust or de demons of anger or something like that. And what you see is it's not that there were demons of those things. Satan is certainly the lord of each of those patterns. But what's going on is the problem of pride and the problem of lust and the problem of the fear of man, these sorts of things. The very... Uh, what, what, get, what get cast out are, are besetting sins, sins of the heart, idols of the heart. And, uh, and part of that is, at the heart of that is because there's essentially a fairly shallow uh, understanding of the nature of counseling, the nature of sanctification, the nature of sin. Um, basically, then, you get these two categories. You get normal problems that Sally or anyone else might have, flesh and world problems, and the answer to that is renunciation, conscious repentance, Christian discipline, quiet time, uh, discipleship, try to obey, Christian service. Uh, all the external fruit of the Christian life is the answer to those. And then you've got these extraordinary problems where people are really stuck. And the answer for that, for the deep problems, is EMM. I tend to think that, it's a, that that kind of bifurcation, the Bible actually gives us a much more unified picture that the problem of the world, the flesh, and the devil covers 
those compulsive, blind, instinctive things. The, but the biblical view of Sally explains both why she has a lust problem as well as why in her pride and fear of man she doesn't want to admit it and why she's fairly blind to it. And it also explains why someone might want to rationalize it in order to help Sally feel better about herself. I mean, that the biblical view just is a scalpel that, that stabs in its diagnosis a whole lot deeper into what the human heart is all about.